Previously on No Stone Unturned. Phi Delta Theta, my young friend. That is where your answers lie. And if anyone tells you otherwise, they're either misinformed or intentionally misleading you. I will be up front, and I'm sure you're going to get to this question that I kind of asked around, and I truthfully don't know where it is, and the people that I know don't know where it is either, so we might be at a dead end from my perspective. So I think there's a lot of sentiment, like, you know, let's bring it back, but have Phi Delta come back with it. I'm John Hanrahan. I'm Sarah Axtell, and this is No No Stone Stone Unturned. By the end of June last year, the case felt like it was breaking open. Several members of the fraternities Delta Tau Delta and Phi Delta Theta had finally responded to our emails. We had spoken with Jeff Ramsey, the former president of Phi Delta, and we had another interview with an alumnus scheduled for June 30th. That alumnus requested that we not share his name or include audio from our interview with him. It was at this point we realized that there was more to the story of The Rock than typical frat shenanigans. Our source had a clear memory of The Rock and the events of 1998. He recalled that The Rock had been cemented in front of Fidelt for at least a few years by the time our source moved to Lawrence, and it wasn't the only rock around the quad. At the time, most other fraternities had their own less historic rocks in front of their houses. The only one that remains today is the rock that sits in front of Sankofa House, formerly Sigep House. So The Rock was seen as just another frat rock, which just happened to have a class of 95 carved into it. Any of its history beyond Fidelt never really came up. That is until just before fall term 1998, when members of Delta Tau Delta stole the rock from Phi Delta's lawn. The alumnus remarked on this. You can imagine how personal that was for many people. Until this point, we hadn't even considered this emotional side of the story, but it made sense. This fraternity had a rock that they viewed as their own, and suddenly it gets ripped out of the ground by members of a rival fraternity. Of course people were upset. When speaking about this back and forth between Delta and Phi Delta, we referred to it as a conflict. The source countered, I don't think there was ever a Delt, Fidelt rock thing. It's sad that people sit there and say, oh, it was a Delt thing or a Fidelt thing, because it was just people. We're not completely sure how to interpret this, but I think it's safe to say that he wanted to deflate the romantic image of two unanimous, warring fraternities. When Delt rented a front-end loader instigating a standoff between the two groups, the alumnus found the situation juvenile or too dangerous, or just dumb. He was not at all nostalgic for this moment. That much was clear. It wasn't fun and games. It was a waste of time and money and emotional energy. He said, In the year that it was traveling around, I think it caused more issues than anything else. Which brings us to what we really wanted to know. Why did The Rock leave campus? And how? And where is it now? You'll remember that on Friday, October 16th, 1998, the Delts and Fidelts had compromised and moved The Rock to the lawn by Samson House. Samson is located at a central point on campus and is home to a number of administrative offices, including that of the university president. By our sources' account, The Rock went straight from Samson to some off-campus location that weekend. Last episode, Jeff Ramsey told us that members of Sigma Phi Epsilon had moved The Rock that Friday from Samson to Delt. We found some evidence that, understandably, both of them misremembered events from nearly two decades ago. According to an article in the Laurentian on October 22nd, members of SIGEP had brought the rock back to the quad mere hours after it was brought to Samson. The article's author, Scott Trigg, wrote, 
Members of Sigma Phi Epsilon thought that the rock should not remain by Samson House and began calling wrecking services for a last-minute rental. According to one member, they did not take it to their house because they already have a rock. Instead, they thought it would be a good idea to move the rock to its recent home north of the Phi Delta Theta house. The rock did not move for the rest of homecoming weekend. Following tradition, it will stay there for the rest of the year. Rahul Kalsi had mentioned to us last summer that Ben Atkinson, a SIGEP, had helped steal the rock from Samson. We tried unsuccessfully to contact Ben last July. This past week, we were finally able to get in touch with him. He told us, I got a guy to come pick it up and carry it back to the fraternity quad. Once it was loaded up and in motion, the Delts and Phi Delts started bidding on who would get to put it in front of their house. The Phi Delts won. I think they paid something like 180 bucks. So I had the guy put it in front of their house. So, The Rock did make its way back to Phi Delt by the end of Homecoming Week 1998. And then, on some night after that weekend, The Rock left campus for good. One little weird thing is that there's no mention of this final disappearance in the Laurentian. Even if we don't know exactly when that move took place, we do know where they went first. Corey Krieger's side lawn. Corey was the Phi Delt alumnus and then Lawrence coach who emailed Sarah Van Steenbergen in episode one. He had recounted that The Rock spent a night on his lawn in the fall of 1998. After that move, the anonymous alum's memory was less clear. He said, From what I know, there's only one Phi Delt who moved it last, is what we're told. And part of the reason is because it was moved off campus to his house. They knew it and trusted it, and it wasn't going to go anywhere else. And they moved it again, and that person's no longer around. So he passed. And then the story, from what I understand, is that no one else knows exactly where it is. I don't know if I believe that. Whoa. The last person to move the rock is dead? Forget the investigation for a second. It was dawning on us just then that we were in deep. We weren't just speaking with the mythical frat boys of yesteryear who had moved this mysterious, wonderful boulder. These were adults who had highly complex relationships with their alma mater. These were human beings. These were people who had maybe lost a friend. Our source had asked us repeatedly why we wanted to bring the rock back to campus. Now we knew why he was asking us. For him, it was associated with conflict, danger, and loss. This was not what we expected going into this project. Far from it. We were also surprised to hear how strained our source's relationship with his alma mater is. He spoke frankly about changes at Lawrence over the past two decades. I think you guys missed out on what Lawrence used to be. He was speaking in particular about Greek life and party culture here. Mirroring national trends, enthusiasm for Greek organizations was higher then than now. More fraternities and bigger parties, in his mind, brought campus closer than it is today. That summer, I'd been living in Sturgeon Bay with my friend Kip, who you'll recognize as the voice of Effie Bochip. With Kip hanging out nearby, John and I debriefed following this conversation. Did you find the rock? No, but we got closer, maybe. But we also just had a really kind of sad conversation. <laughs> An emotionally draining interview. Yeah. How so? Um, kind of bitter, I think, is the best term. Bitter, bitter yeah. About what? Uh, the changes at Lawrence, how Greek life just wasn't what it used to be, 
uh, students are much more focused on their education now instead of being well-rounded individuals, work hard, play hard. Yeah, his voice got very quavery when he was reminiscing about life at Lawrence. We can't tell if he just talks like this or if like that. He's crying. He's crying. Well, that's something. It's so weird. We weren't expecting to have to deal with, like, this much. Like, we're walking into a a very emotionally charged part of a bunch of 30-something men's lives. When we started this project, John and I thought this was going to be a fun, inconsequential adventure. We thought we'd talk to some nostalgic alumni, find a boulder, and tie it all up in a cute podcast. We started to worry. Were we in over our heads? This is a good time to say that we're going to need to take a short break in our release schedule between this episode and the next one. The story is harder to tell than we thought it would be, and we want to tell it right, so we need some time. We appreciate your support. While interviewing other people about their histories with The Rock, there was one question for me and John that kept resurfacing. Do you have a thought of where The Rock would go if, if you brought it back? <laughs> maybe, maybe back with Maxie. Do you know about Maxie? I know we've established the fact that The Rock couldn't really stick around at any one resting place. So who is this Maxie, and why is he so deserving of The Rock over anyone else? Like The Rock, Maxie is another forgotten campus icon. Unlike The Rock, Maxie was smaller, shorter-lived, and furrier. Unlike The Rock, Maxie was a dog. In 1941, he made his unceremonious debut on campus at the heels of freshman Charles Chuck Cleefith. No one thought much of the three-month-old Cocker Spaniel puppy at the time. But considering his namesake, heavyweight boxing champion Max Schmeling, perhaps the diminutive pup was destined to become something bigger. Maxie spent his early days living at Chuck's home on East Pacific Street, just north of campus. His tenacity in following Chuck to college and back every day was described by a Laurentian reporter as making Mary and her lamb look like amateurs. Coincidentally, Chuck pledged Fidelt, so it's a safe bet that some of Maxie's puppy days were spent tumbling around the newly constructed Fidelt house on East Alton Street. In the spring of 1943, Chuck was called for active duty in the Army and left campus. But Maxie stayed on. Without any one owner, Maxie adopted the Lawrence community as a whole. He marched with the Navy V-12s while campus hosted them. He never missed a home football game and, to the chagrin of the referees, would occasionally invite himself onto the field to assist the Vikings play. He was also a fetch aficionado and would chase any stick, snowball, or ice chunk thrown his way. Like any good Laurentian, Maxie's interests weren't just confined to athletics. He was academically motivated, too, and frequently attended classes where he would quietly sit and only occasionally doze off. After Chuck returned from the war, Maxie, ever loyal, figured out the city bus lines and hitched rides on his own back to Pacific Street. Eventually, Maxie came to be acknowledged as an official campus mascot. In his time on campus, Maxie was supposedly awarded an honorary Doctor of Dogs degree, elected Campus Beauty in the Yearbook, pronounced insane following a series of tests by the psychology department, 
and fathered at least one litter of puppies with Lassie, the dog of Sigep House. Shortly after celebrating his 10th anniversary on campus, Maxie's health began to fail. After a week of sickness, he was put down in February of 1952. Campus was devastated by the loss. But he can't die until we graduate, one senior was quoted as saying. Lawrence President Nathan Marsh Pusey eulogized him at a faculty meeting later that week. For more than a decade, the little brown creature, known as Maxie, has been scampering about the campus, nose close to the ground, intent on his own business, beloved by several generations of students. I am sure no one else ever went to Lawrence so long without getting a degree, if we must speak the truth, but Maxie wasn't much impressed by professors of the academic life. He was always very well behaved in class, but really only woke up and came alive with the bell for dismissal. We shall all miss him a great deal. Members of Beta Theta Pi held a memorial service for Maxie in the snow outside of Main Hall, Lawrence's oldest building, next to where the rock was resting at the time. They buried him there, on the green, in a small box. The rock served as his headstone for years afterwards, before the memories of Maxie gradually faded and the rock moved onward. They're a bit of an odd couple, a rock and a dog, bound together arbitrarily as forgotten traditions. If the rock ends up coming back to campus, we would want to see it placed in a spot where it could easily be painted and seen by passerby. Main Hall Green would be perfect. In the space where Maxie would chase down sticks and snowballs, in the shade where he might have rested after a long day of classes, the rock could mark Maxie's place of play, study, and rest. As we all know, the rock's been missing for a while now. Seventeen and a half years. At a place where most of us don't stay much longer than four years, that kind of absence covers eons. Believe it or not, that's not the longest our community has gone rockless since its arrival on campus 48 years after Lawrence's founding. We were also once bereft of our dear rock for 19 years. People have asked us during our investigation, how do you lose a 4,700-pound boulder? Those crazy plants kids in 1964 tried one option. You bury it. We spoke with Jim McNamee over Skype in November. He attended Lawrence for two and a half years, and he witnessed the rock's burial. I'd like to take a quick moment to be thankful for the internet. Our conversation happened with Jim in Colorado, John in Illinois, and me in Germany. So are you in Berlin now? Sure. I'm I'm in Berlin right at this moment. It is 5 p.m. That's good time. Yeah, good morning to you. <laughs> yeah, good morning. And good afternoon to you. <laughs> Thank you, Internet. Where are you from originally? Wisconsin, don't you know? Oh, of course. You betcha. I uh, grew up in Milwaukee, and then I um, we moved to Appleton when I was a senior in high school. And I graduated from Appleton West when it was still just Appleton Senior High because it was the only high school. And that was right after the Civil War. And then then I went to Lawrence. For <laughs> That's two and great. Half, yeah, two and a half years. I made it to where you are right now before they invited me to take my act somewhere else. <laughs> they recruited me, actually, because I was a pretty good student, real good student, as a matter of fact. And they recruited me while I was in Appleton or at high school, probably in the middle of my senior year. I hadn't really thought about where I wanted to go yet, and they gave me a scholarship and a grant. 
He attended Lawrence to join the ROTC. He planned to enlist in the Air Force. He ended up becoming a helicopter pilot in the U.S. Army during the Vietnam War. I mean, it was right down the road. I only lived right on the other side of the river, just off of John Street. And uh, so I figured, yeah, why not? So then I lived at home for about the first semester. And then a friend of mine, one of my Delp brothers, as a matter of fact, his roommate got thrown out after after our first semester. He got thrown out. And so I just kind of moved in with Eric and pretty much stayed in the dorms the rest of my time there, although they knew I was doing that, but they didn't say anything about me not paying any uh, rent. (laughs) At that point, freshman boys lived in either Plants Hall or Brokaw Hall. Jim and his friend Eric lived in Plants. So it was a pretty good deal. Yeah, I remember one time during Rush, a bunch of us for some reason, and it was mostly guys that wound up pledging with the Delts, egged egged the Delt house, which was stupid. <laughs> yeah, but we weren't we weren't pledged yet. So, you know, we were, you know, we just ran by heading toward the Law Street Bridge and threw a bunch of eggs, and I don't know why we even did it. I think they, for some reason, they, the, the active members there pissed off a friend of mine. I don't know why, but <laughs> there were about three or four of us. But you, you, we didn't usually do stuff like that that I can recall, like burying the rock or doing anything like that. We... But we had a good time. About that burial. In the, which we could, I could never understand what they, why they did that. I mean, I can understand. I don't even remember where the rock was before that because, you know, like I say, we just kind of, there were some guys, a lot of guys that went to Lawrence were pretty well off. And so they could afford to pay for this dastardly deed of, of a front loader and all this stuff to bring the rock over, dig the hole dump the rock in there, bury it, and put concrete on it. And I always thought, now, why would you do something like that? But as long as they were doing it, we decided we'd go down and and watch them. And I can't even remember who the main instigators were. Of course, like I said, that was 50 years ago or whatever now. From the research we had done, it was hard to tell where exactly they buried the rock. Was it under the parking lot behind plants? Under the lawn? Oh, that's easy. If you're looking at Plants Hall... And you're, st- you're standing on College Avenue and you're looking at Plants Hall. It was buried behind the left side of the building. It used to be, that's where Bike Rack was. It was it, there's a back door to Plants Hall. When you go out the first floor on the, whatever side that, let's see, on the northwest side, okay? And you go out that door and it was right to the left of the door. I mean, right there. That's where it was buried. For years, like you say, it was in the 80s sometime when they dug it up. It was pretty big. <laughs> they they dug the hole, and the rock, I think, you know, I, I keep thinking that the rock was a little bigger than the one at Sigup House now, but... It's bigger. It might have been just a, the same size or just a little bit bigger, and they buried it, as I recall, four feet deep. I mean, they had four feet above the rock, so it was a hole big enough for that rock. So you take that rock... And you figure you dig a hole big enough for that rock and then big enough to have it buried under four feet of dirt and a layer of concrete. They, they did a good job of it. <laughs> There's a picture of the burial site just after it all went down. John and I found it in the summer 2001 edition of the Lawrence Alumni Magazine. A line of jovial plantsmen stand around a substantial hole that's been mostly filled in with concrete. In good college prank form, a sign reserving the president's parking spot sticks out of the concrete. The caption in the magazine names three of the rock nappers, Jim Thompson, Gene Paulus, and Jim McNamee, whom we interviewed. 
When Jim saw the picture, he added the names Teddy and Bob to the list and confirmed that they all lived in plants that year, most likely on the second floor. In a recent email to Margaret Koss, a writer for The Laurentian, Terry L. Myers, class of 67, confirmed his role in rock shenanigans in 1964 and in funding its reemergence in 1983. You know, I wonder how Terry's experience as a Laurentian prankster influences his current work as Chancellor Professor of English at the College of William and Mary. Ever since The Rock disappeared in 1998, the on-campus community's awareness of its existence has generally decreased. In the few years after Fidelt moved it, we've heard that some search efforts did take place. Mostly, though, Lawrence students forgot. The same thing happened after the Plants kids buried it in 1964. By October 1st, 1966, the Laurentian had this to say about The Rock. The possibility of bringing it to the surface dims each year as fewer and fewer people know about it. There's one important distinction between then and now. Today, the rock is gone. M.I.A. Back then, they knew where it was. It just happened to be encased in concrete and dirt. It was going to take some serious funding and equipment to get it back. And when those plants kids and their classmates returned to campus for the 15th reunion in 1983, that's exactly what they did. Around noon on a sunny day in June, a crane from P.G. Myron loomed over a crowd behind plants. Several onlookers, including then-Lawrence President Rick Warch, had moved the bike racks out of the way. As Warch munched on a PB&J sandwich, the light of day graced the rock's peeling, painted exterior for the first time in years. According to an article in the Post-Crescent on June 14th, Warch said, with mock enthusiasm, What a great day for Lawrence University. Class of 67 came dressed for the occasion. There was some story about the, the people who buried the rocks getting wearing t-shirts afterwards, kind of gloating about burying the rocks, something like we came, we took, have, we buried. I have, that, I have that t-shirt, I was going to mention that, that said, we saw, we took, we kept the rock. And I think it said, you know, Plants Hall, 1964 or whatever. But anyhow, it was, we saw, we took, we kept. You know, we were scholars. <laughs> Sarah and I ended up speaking with Jim about much more than just rock hijinks. We talked about travel, languages, beer, life choices, and making something of your circumstances. He told us about his time in the army. He told us about his Purple Heart. Months after we had finished most of our interviews for this project, our conversation with Jim reminded us of one of our goals in doing this thing connecting with charming, nostalgic alumni, and documenting their stories. I've enjoyed talking to you, though. Your stories have been excellent, so thank you. You're welcome. You know, flunking out of Lawrence at the time was a bad deal, of course, but it turned out all right. Probably it was a life-changing experience, for sure, because I, especially going in the Army for eight years, I uh, I matured a lot. (laughs) So, you know, it was nice being at Lawrence, and it worked out. Stone Unturned is produced by Sarah Axtell and me, John Hanrahan. Ridley Tankersley and Noah Gunther produced the original score for this episode. Willa Johnson designed our logo. We received production assistance from Nathan Lawrence. Michaela Hutton performed the email from Brad Manning. Rachel Tabor performed the message from Ben Atkinson. Jenny Hanrahan, my sister, performed quotes from our anonymous source. 
Alex Damis performed Nathan Pusey's eulogy. Special thanks to Layla Horish. For more information about No Stone Unturned and past episodes, visit our website at nsupodcast.rocks. That's nsupodcast.rocks. If you liked this podcast, visit our page on iTunes and throw us a nice rating or review. Thanks.